thank you, Nick, for that kind welcome. It is, of course, a real pleasure to be here. And it is uh, a special pleasure and a little bit humbling to be in the presence of my dear, my beloved teacher, Professor Mahmoud Ayoub, who I know will forgive me for speaking today, but I'm not sure I will be able to do that. Uh, it, it was a wonderful surprise to see him and to be here with him. Please listen with a sin-covering ear, Yaachi. I'm grateful to the organizers, Jane Carroll and Nick Yangu, Sister Marianne, and especially Munir Jiwa, who is a light for all of us. I'm going to speak about the role of the Quran in coming to terms with a definition for human being and being fully human. Uh, as we all know, nothing is more important to either Ibn Arabi or Rumi than the Quran. Nothing. They, their lives represent a, a kind of incorporating the Quran into the very fabric of their consciousnesses and their, and their souls. Their, whatever they began with was replaced by the Quran. And what we have from them in the form of the Masnavi is famously referred to, uh, not even blasphemously, as the Quran in Persian. And the Futahat, as, as has been demonstrated, is really modeled on the shape and form and structure of the Quran. It is, uh, they are, their souls are formed by the Quran. The, the Quran is the major architectural structure of Islamic consciousness and being. So I would like to speak in the few minutes that I have about the topic of humanity and human being in the Quran. To begin with, the Quran is a product of a particular time and place. And one of the reasons it has not really taken its place in world literature the way it should is because many of the factors of its time and place are so unfamiliar to a, a general readership of the great books variety, for example, that we simply have no way in. And so it remains neglected. The light, however, is dawning, uh, most recently by uh, a marvelous book by the speaker who preceded me, Professor Carl Ernst, How to Read the Quran, has made marvelous uh, headway into demonstrating the way in which the Quran 
is literature which is meaningful and which is not irrational or not chaotic, contrary to most people's experience when they pick up the text. So we are making progress. Professor Ernst's work, the work of others in Quranic studies, we're coming along. So what was formerly seen as an obstacle has now been transformed in, for what it is and for an English reading audience as a mark of beauty and a mode of meaning and a way of conveying spiritual truth. But we're still at the beginning stages of understanding how to read it in English. But one of the things that the Quran did uh, was to help the world of its time and place make sense of what was going on around it. Uh, both from the point of view of that world being the Hejaz in the 7th century and that world also being the more cosmopolitan uh, Mesopotamian world of Baghdad and environs, which was full of all kinds of variations of humanity. The Quran was a textbook for helping people understand this. You know, in English we have these wonderful words for plurals like a pride of lions or an exaltation of larks. In this instance, we can think of a chaos of religions. The Quran takes this as its, one of its first problems and in a single verse solves it. The verse is in Surah 7, number 172, which is the famous Surah of the Covenant, or verse of the Covenant, describing the day of Alast. It is this day which is the beginning of everything for Islam. In this way, the Islamic kerygma slightly different than the biblical kerygma because the beginning is in a timeless and placeless region, open only to the senses of the spirit. And, of course, the sense of, which is in fact a sense, the sense of remembrance, dhikr, and contemplation, tadabur, and, uh, and so on. So this, but this is a very sacred time and place beyond time and place, as you all know, in which God took forth from the loins of the Banu Adam, an, a, a synonym for humanity, by the way, in the Quran, and arrayed them before him in this mysterious realm, in this plain of Alast, and gave them the question, am I not your Lord? And the instant immediate response was, indeed, or yea, verily, bala. There is no doubt in the mind of the Quran or in the mind of Islam or Muslims or Ibn Arabi or Rumi that the audience for this question was everyone. Muslims, Christians, Jews, Zoroastrians, Republicans, homosexuals, uh, vegetarians, uh, NRA members, all, everyone was present at that time. Right? 
It is, uh, I mean, it may strike us as somewhat funny, but it's true. No one is left out. And so this puts into our perspective a, a sort of supplemental understanding of remembrance. When we think of the vocation of remembrance, calling to mind the names of God and uh, contemplation and meditation, if we were asked, we would probably say, well, yes, we're remembering God. But of course, we all know that is impossible, right? We rem- because in order to remember God, one has to conceptualize God. And as students of Ibn Arabi, we know that this is really not on. It doesn't, it doesn't work that way. But the act of dhikr most certainly takes us back to this timeless, placeless occasion where whatever God is was certainly in charge, but we were all together. And we have the memory of this inscribed in our spiritual DNA. And the Quran tells us that it is utterly important, non-negotiable, that we should remember this as much as we remember God, that we are in fact all together. Now this is not anything that, that we don't know, but I would like to stay along this theme for the rest of my time to speak about how, how beautifully it is expressed in the Quran. So I have a couple of notes here. Let's see if I can find if I can find them. Uh, <clears throat> okay. The the word for, the normal word for human being or humanity, man, slightly politically incorrect, but this is, there you are, uh, uh, is insan or anas. But this is only one word to indicate the, the being that causes so much trouble here in the sublunar realm. Uh, there are many other words that indicate the same species, if you like. And it's a species between the animals and the angels and, and, and God. And it's a species, if we want to use a little reverse algebra, whatever that may be, uh, it's the species which responded, in fact, to the original question from God. So whatever can respond to that question and in fact make a decision is included in this idea of insan. Now, as has been said many times by many people, the Islamic tradition is a very beautiful tradition and one of the reasons it's so beautiful is because there's very little agreement on anything. And one of the things there's disagreement about is 
the etymology of the word insan. But it's not, it's not that one etymology is right and one is wrong. Ultimately, I think both are held to be true in some mysterious way together. It's not either or, it's both and. But the traditional philological etymology of insan is that it comes from the Arabic root uns, which means sociability. A bit along the lines of the Aristotelian man is the, what, animal that likes to be together, that lives together in groups. Uh, this, is, this is considered to be the scientifically correct one. Uh, the other one was uh, is ascribed to Ibn Abbas, that actually the word insan comes from the root word nasiya, which means to forget. And so while the word insan indicates those people, those beings that were able to respond to the divine question, it equally refers to those people who've forgotten the whole deal. Yani covenant, which is what covenant means. Ahad, mithak, means deal, right? Uh, agreement, covenant. So these two etymologies function, stand together. We don't have to choose one over the other, but we have to read them both at the same time. Human beings can do this. You know, the tradition says that Dajjal is one-eyed, right? But uh, true human beings see things with two eyes. We can see with the one eye the philological explanation and with the other eye, which is the one, in fact, that Ibn Arabi liked to ponder and meditate on, that it comes from the root to forget, are both useful. So while there is, as I famously said, there is no original sin in Islam, there is forgetting. And forgetting precisely the moment of the covenant on the plane of alast. You might think of the Quran as the epic of a people who subscribe to this vision. And this vision is fleshed out in the Quran in a number of very important key verses which speaks about the history of humanity on the planet after the day of Alast, when time and place actually became realities, and who they are and what they're all about. And it, it's very clear, as you all know, I won't be telling you anything you don't know, but it seems that all these human beings from the beginning that has no beginning have lived in groups and each of those groups has been sent a divine messenger of the same status and rank as the Prophet Muhammad, upon whom be blessing and peace. And not only that, each of these divine messengers, in the workshop we will look at the specific verses that indicate all of this, but those messengers have spoken to each of those various groups in their own particular historically, culturally determined languages. So there's never been any problem with understanding the divine message. And the 
one of the main features of the divine message is precisely to call to mind our common origins as humanity. So to be a human and to be uh, a member of the human race means to acknowledge our connectedness, that we are all, for better and for worse, we are all related to each other. This is a great achievement of Islam. This is, this is one of the reasons, I assume, I, I would think, that Islam grew so rapidly. This is a wonderful, wonderful vision of the chaos of religions, in the face of which that chaos simply dissolves, and things are now understood. That each of these communities that have existed on the planet have had a messenger. There are only 25 mentioned in the Quran, but as you know, the, the tradition, as, as mentioned last night by Professor Chittick, the tradition has postulated the existence of 124,000 messengers and prophets to account for history, to account for the un unrolling of time and the development of communities all over the world. Each one of these communities has had their own prophet. So the implications of this, and well, there are probably many, but the one that comes to mind is that the idea of a chosen people is utterly obsolete now. With the coming of the Qur'an, you may have had a reason to misunderstand in the past, but the Qur'an is now making it non-negotiable that there can be no notion of a chosen people. That's not the same thing as saying that human beings do not have the obligation to choose. This is one of the things that distinguishes them. They have to make a choice. They, human beings are also defined by being the only entity in the, in the entire universe that has to decide to obey the covenant. Everything else happily obeys the covenant by nature of its own structure and its own being created in the world. But man is distinguished by having to be conscious of this obligation and to make it real, to existentiate the choice to follow divine guidance, which, of course, covers a great deal of territory, divine guidance. So this Day of the Covenant is, in a sense, an Islamic, a Quranic theory about the beginning of history as such, but more importantly, it's an Islamic theory about the beginning of consciousness. And that consciousness is, in fact, stimulated to life through this divine question, am I not your Lord? All who share in consciousness share in the obligation, the human obligation, to make the right decisions and the right choices. The Quran says that Yes, all of these communities have existed, and had we, God speaking, had we wanted to, as you know, we could have made them all one community from the very beginning. But we didn't. We didn't, and we made them in, I'm petitioning other verses now, 
We made them in various tribes, various communities, with various languages, in various colors, for one particular reason. And that reason is so that they would share in the experience of recognizing each other. This is a magnificent, magnificent teaching. And, and you know, the Arabic is so precise. <laughs> it is a particular verb of mutuality which says, li ta'arafu, that you might come to recognize and know each other. And part of that knowing has to include recognizing our common origin on the plane of Alast, where we were all together on one blessed day. Right? So the colors, the languages, the tribal groupings, all of these things are there in order for this consciousness to be deployed in this sort of existentially enriching way. The uh, <clears throat> the idea of Islam, as such, has recently come under a very interesting study in a series of books by a scholar at the University of Chicago named Fred Donner, which he, in his most, as far as I know, the most recent one, but there may be a newer one, very productive and very interesting thinker, pointing out, reminding us, that the word Islam and the word Muslim in the original Arabic, he didn't say this, but I'm saying it for heuristic purposes, didn't have capital letters. Uh, there was not, a, nor, nor was there a copyright sign uh, next, to the, next to these words. They were words that described attitudes and phenomena in the world that were common to everyone. So that the idea of a uh, Muslim was not necessarily the notion of a card-carrying member of an organization. And the idea of Islam was not necessarily the notion of a reified structure, institutionalized religious belief. Islam means well, we like to use the word submit because that scares so many people away. But it could also, it, it could also mean commitment, right? Or devotion, or obedience, uh, or acknowledgement of this divine uh, amr, cause for humanity. Which it would seem, in the, as he points out in his book, the amr in the period of the Hijazi period was really to affect the unity of the various warring and competing tribal configurations of the peninsula. And this was done uh, with astonishing success because, partly because of the linguistic power and beauty of the Quranic message, but also because of the beauty uh, of the character and soul of the Prophet Muhammad. This attracted heretofore warring tribes together to acknowledge each other, to recognize each other, and through this newly established unity, uh, 
to somehow or another reflect on the social plane the divine, unknowable unity uh, indicated in the word Tawheed. So there is a direct connection between the oneness of God and the oneness of the Ummah. And there's no, there is no uh, evidence at all to support the contention that to be a member of the Ummah, you had to have a membership card into something called capital I-S-L-A-M. Uh, Donner's research is very compelling. It's very, very interesting. And he even goes so far as to say that uh, the other Quranic word that's so important here, the believer, the mu'min, it's quite conceivable that there could have been believers in the new message, people who heard the new dispensation, who were also identified as Jews and Christians and uh, Hunafa and, and, and whatever else there may have been. It's a very illuminating study. Because, as, as, as Carl was saying earlier, our notion of religion is really something that we have superimposed on the study of Islam. There is no word in Arabic or Persian which really captures the pernicious uh, charge of this word religion. Uh, we have adyan and deen and, 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 and mazahib and these kinds of things, but when we think of religion, it's something, something quite other. So, a human being, man, according to the Quran, is someone who participated in the day of the covenant, who heard the divine question, who responded positively, and who is in a process of becoming, of becoming, which answers the question of being fully human from the point of view of the Quran and from Ibn Arabi and Rumi also means to be, to acknowledge that one is in fact incomplete, that, that there is more to be done, that one can be more, one can emulate the divine attributes more perfectly. You know, frequently it's said that well, the divine attributes are there to demonstrate that God is the only one who can do them perfectly, right? And so why should we even bother trying to be forgiving or merciful? We might as well give up. Well, the, the point is that according to the Sharia and the Sunnah, the indication is that one must attempt to be more merciful. One must attempt to be more forgiving. One must attempt to be more patient. It is in the working out of these divine attributes that human beings can become more fully human. The, I don't know what the time is, sorry. We're okay? Good. So the, the main point then is that recollection and remembrance is certainly to remember God but it becomes a little, little bit of a puzzle since we don't really know what to remember when we're remembering God, right? Uh, and it's not a good idea to try and create one. This is frowned upon in the Quran, right? Uh, but what we can definitely remember and acknowledge is this moment when all humanity was united 
was together, was one, one group. And the teaching of the Quran is a way of trying to bring this about, to re, in a sense, to return to that, that day of the covenant. In the postulating of the people of the book, uh, the insistence that every human community has had a divine messenger, that every divine messenger has spoken clearly to that, to that group, and that we are all, in a sense, in this together. The, there's a beautiful sort of Islamic koan. Uh, the prophet, in response to a question about the beginning of all things, uh, the famous line is that, well, uh, God was alone and nothing was with him. Right. It's quoted by Ibn Arabi uh, dozens and if not hundreds of times. And then there is a there's a there's a codicil to this, which they say was added by Junaid when he when he heard this hadith from the Prophet, God was alone and nothing was with him, he added in the same breath, and now it's just as it was. Right. Al-an kama kan. In other words, this is kind of a maya, kind of an illusion that we, that there are other things besides God, that we are here. And one of the reasons that we can imagine this is because of this beautiful myth. And of course, in this room, we don't, when we use the word myth, we don't mean something that's not true, right? We mean something that is profoundly true. This myth of the Day of the Covenant is, for Islam, a cardinal and primary teaching. So if, if, there are, uh, if there's a few minutes, I would be very happy to discuss some of these things with you all. But in the meantime, I would like to thank you for your kind patience. Wow. Thank you. Thank you.